Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Smart People Podcast, a podcast for smart people, where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Demp here. Thanks for tuning in and happy new year. Welcome to 2024. The future has arrived. And because of that, we thought we might as well explain to you what the quote unquote future is. And the future is web three, baby. Web three. For many of us, it's a tagline. For some of you, you know a little bit. And for the tiniest amount, you think you know a lot until you listen to this episode. Look, I'm not an internet guy. I don't really like technologies. But I do believe if you want to keep up with the Joneses, you have to understand what's going on in the world. And I have to say our guest this week is perhaps one of the most articulate guests and people I've ever met. And so he does a great job of explaining this unique time we're at, where these four really impressive technologies are converging to potentially change our future. This week on the show, we are talking with Alex Tapscott. And Alex is an entrepreneur, author, and capital markets professional with a focus on the impact of emerging technologies, such as blockchain, crypto, etc. His latest book is Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. He is the managing director of the Digital Assets Group at Nine Point Partners and co author of one of the best selling books about blockchain called Blockchain Revolution. Look, I have to say it, but this show is all about bringing you the people who have been in the trenches, the people who have dedicated their lives to topics, and then trying to distill their knowledge down to a 45 minute or hour long conversation. And this episode, is so symbolic 
of that brand, of that idea, because Alex is truly and clearly an expert in this space. He is also articulate, concise, and to the point. The point here is if you want to crash course on Web3, I think this is the best 45 minutes you're ever going to find on the topic. Excited to bring it to you. Again, Happy New Year. Hope you're doing well. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe. Tell a friend. Let's get into it. Here we are with Alex Tapscott as we talk about his new book, Web 3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Enjoy. I've been hearing about Web 3 for seemingly forever and blockchain and Bitcoin, yet outside of the gains I've made on Bitcoin, none of it in in my world has materialized. So do you think it's true that now is the time? Is this something we should finally be paying attention to? Or is this still too far in the distance for the average person? It's a great question and a a perfect setup. Um, I think that now is the time for everyone to be paying attention to what's happening in Web3. Um, we're in this very sort of unique time in human history. You know, every once in a while, Chris, a new technology emerges that transforms the economic power grid and the old order of human affairs in ways that are you know, quite profound and unexpected. And we've seen that play out time and again, whether it's you know, the invention of the Internet or the TV or the transistor or um, the steam engine and so on and so forth. And right now we're in this very interesting moment where there's not one but four new technologies, all kind of emerging at the same time, or at least they're all hitting their stride. The first amongst these is a technology known as blockchain. Now, blockchain is not a sonorous term. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, uh, but blockchain is nonetheless a very important concept. So basically, blockchains, to your point about Bitcoin, enable us to create scarcity online. So they enable individuals to move value peer-to-peer without the need for an intermediary. And blockchains can be the foundation for really literally any kind of digital asset. Um, It can work for Bitcoin, but it can just as easily work for, uh, you know, shares in companies, art and collectibles, IP, even votes in an election, anything that requires scarcity to have value. And so as more and more commerce moves on to blockchains, um, the value of those assets is going to continue to grow. The second big technology is AI. AI is helping us to reimagine what we thought computers could do, but also what people could do when when empowered with this toolkit. I think it's going to lead to some really strange and quite unexpected outcomes. Uh, The third of these is extended reality, right? The idea that um, we've had a two-dimensional internet for decades, right? You see it on your phone or on your your screen, your tablet, your laptop, whatever, what have you. And uh, what uh, extended reality, and that means, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, is going to take us to is a 3D web. Right, an internet that is um, integrated into our natural world. And then the fourth of these technologies is connected devices or what they call the internet of things. And these are more than just you know uh, smart thermostats. We're talking about devices that can do transactions and that have autonomy, that can think thanks to AI. So these technologies are not separate, but related. In the same way that the term internet went from describing a very narrow range of sort of networking technologies to describing a whole range of Um, technologies, but also new business models, new social behaviors, and so forth. 
um, so too is the term Web3 coming to describe this new era where these different technologies are converging together. Blockchain is clearly the one that started it all. I think when people think of Web3, they think of crypto or Web or blockchain or digital assets. Um, but the technologies that are emerging today, um, the thing that's going to matter the most, in my view, is how they intersect. Um, and how they interact with each other. I'm happy to explore that uh, in a little bit more detail. So, um, you know, most technologies from the outside looking in look like overnight success stories. You know, ChatGPT hits the market. Oh, wow, AI, where did that come from? The reality is that they're usually many decades in the making. AI has gone through plenty of its fits and starts, what they call, you know, AI winters. And, uh, and that's been true for lots of other technologies too. So um, what I find unique about this moment is that all of these things which have been in the R&D phase or in the sort of skunk works phase or trial and error phase um, all seem to be hitting prime time at the same moment. And I think that's very exciting because to my knowledge, I'm not aware of a period in history where all these different technologies have all emerged at the exact same time um, or, or so many different technologies have emerged at the same time. And, you know, I think that that's going to um, change our world <laughs> in some uh, some pretty big ways. First of all, one of the most articulate explanations of all four of those that I've heard. I, I love your um, your discussion about Web3 there, because prior to this, as I try to generally understand it, I just kept hearing Web3 is where we own our content. I forget. It was like one was it was like right. What? what how do they define it? Right. Own something. Right. Or right own. Yeah. There you go. Read, write, own. Yeah. And that's all I'd heard. But that's seemingly not at all inclusive of what you just talked about. Well, it's an interesting point. I think that it depends on on how good the definition is of read, write, own. Because I think to your point, if, if all that the own means is own your own content, well, then that is kind of a limiting definition <laughs> that doesn't yeah. capture everything that I'm describing. But I actually think that the read, write, own framework is a useful one. So, you know, if people have heard your previous episode, maybe they've heard something similar to this. But basically, the web is entering a new era. Um, the first era of the web, Web 1, which, you know, I think most people remember as the dot-com era, was basically a way to consume content on websites. And it was pretty static, and it was pretty much one way, right? So you'd log on to the internet, you'd look at, you'd see images, you'd see text, um, you could consume, you know, TV, radio, um, the printed word and so forth, but you couldn't interact with it. You couldn't upload your own stuff. You know, you weren't using the web as a collaborative or communication tool. It was really sort of um, broadcast medium, not not totally unlike like say TV or, or radio. But what was unique about it was that unlike TV and radio, um, it sort of uh, democratized access to information. And and by that I mean it didn't matter, Chris, if you were where are you based? Virginia. So like you're in Virginia, I'm in Toronto. You know, if we turned on the TV to 30 years ago, or today for that matter, we would have received different kinds of content because we're in different geographies. Um, and what was unique about the web was that it didn't matter if you're in Virginia or Toronto or Timbuktu, if you typed the same URL into a field, you'd get the same information, right? And so that is a way to, that democratized access to information in a way that wasn't possible before. And that's a really- Alex, I, just, I, I have to pause you. I'm sorry. I don't want to mess up your flow, yeah, but fine. I, I just- I love this. Like, I just had this flash to when I was probably eight or nine. I loved baseball. Yeah. And you know how I got baseball scores? The newspaper. Yeah. The newspaper. I remember you would open it up. I can smell it right now. And I haven't thought about this in decades, right? 
and they had the grid of the standings and they had how many games back each team was and they had the scores listed and they had the the you know what um each team did that is foreign to many listening in fact maybe they're just hearing this for the first time but it, it's it, it goes to show how much things change but they do it over time so we kind of forget yeah i just had to jump in because that's a great way of thinking of web one this kind of not just democratization but we all get it when we want it at the same time in the same way yeah exactly and i'll and i'll, and I'll add to your uh, example which is that a lot of the early uh, web businesses websites were in a way trying to take stuff that existed before and put it online so a lot of the first websites were places where you could get sports scores read the news find the classifieds or online encyclopedias or like these were things that already existed it was like oh now we have a new broadcast uh, medium, a new way to, to, to deliver content on the internet. Um, and that's what web one was. And in, in many respects, like that's still how we can use the internet for some things today, but it wasn't until web two that I think the, the internet kind of took a great leap forward. So web two, what they call the read write web, basically what that means is that rather than just going to the internet to read content, to, to access content, you're able to, in computer jargon, write to it. And basically all that means is upload your own stuff. So you can, you know, share information, you can tweet, you can uh, post photos or videos, you can become a content creator and so on and so forth. And this um, era of the web um, did a couple of things. So it, it onboarded billions of people to the internet. Um, it turned us all into co-producers of the web in a way, co-creators. Um, it gave a voice to people who maybe didn't have a way to express it in the past. Um, you know, in other words, it democratized publishing, right? Anybody could share their own thoughts or photos or insights on the web for better or for worse, mostly for the better. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, overall, it created a lot of value. But the thing is, a lot of that value was captured mostly by big platforms. Um, not necessarily by the people who are creating that value. And that's uh, because there has never been a way to express ownership on the internet, a way for uh, people to own assets that they can store themselves and move peer to peer, that they can use to do transactions and that they can use to represent things of value. And that's the promise of Web3, or what they call the read, write, own web which is that not only is the web way to access content or to upload information, but it's a new platform that allows you to own your own identity uh, and data, um, but also to own your own digital goods and creations and to be able to monetize them and to move them uh, and to store them and to transact with them and to do with them what you'd like in a way that wasn't possible uh, before because there was no medium for value. So that's, that is all made possible because of the innovation of blockchain technology. But it's, to me, again, how, so that's the foundation of Web3. But what's really exciting is how this is occurring at the same time as these other technology revolutions. And it's how these things are going to intersect that, that I think is really interesting. Um, and, I, and I'm happy to exp explore oh, yeah. lots, lots of different um, examples of this. So consider like extended reality, for example, virtual reality and augmented reality. I think when, when people think of um, virtual reality, they think of the metaverse, right? The metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think that actually shook out how it was initially intended. Well, I would argue <laughs> that the reason it hasn't yet shaken out is because um, the technologies that are key to making it successful 
hadn't reached prime time yet. And I think that now, now that they have. And I think that those two technologies are extended reality, virtual reality, and specifically the hardware uh, and the computing power that's needed uh, to actually render a metaverse, but also uh, blockchains as a way to express ownership. So I'll explain what I mean. So I think when most people think of the metaverse, they're thinking of um, like Mark Zuckerberg's vision of because this is what we see on the news and, you know, on YouTube and so forth. Um, you know, you put on this Oculus headset that's owned by Facebook, and then you enter this virtual environment where you, um, you know, play by their rules and where you don't have any privacy, just like you wouldn't in Facebook, um, privacy vis-a-vis the platform, right? Where the platform consume knows everything about you. Um, and where, you know, your transactions, are heavily taxed and if you and you're not able to take any of your assets outside of that environment right so like you know you're in the metaverse and you know you um you're doing transactions you own assets you've got some virtual currency you've got some you know collectibles art like whatever credentials whatever they may be you can't take them out of that environment they only work inside that environment so to me that's not um, the metaverse and i you know the metaverse i think you can sort of think of as like a new shared reality online um, to, to me, that's not the metaverse. That's just virtual Disneyland. All that's happening here is, is we're taking this Web2 model where you as the user, uh, reliant on a platform, you have no uh, privacy, you've got no control over your assets or your data, um, and you're trapped in this environment. Um, that uh, replicates it in a virtual world. So if we want to fulfill the promise of a new shared reality, rather than just recreating virtual Disneyland, um, then we need to get a couple things right. First of all, the, the hardware needs to be better. Um, like right now, you know, if, if you ever worn an Oculus headset, it's fun, but you get, the, yeah, it is. you get the sensation after a couple hours that you're, you're kind of suffocating and you want to take, want to take it off. So, 100%. so if people are going to spend like hours and hours of time, then they need to make it so that it's, you, you forget about it, like earbuds or something, right. Or, or contact lenses. Um, and so we're not quite there yet, but the bigger thing that we need is a way to express the same rights that we have in the real world in the virtual world. And by that, I mean a right to privacy, a right to ownership, to property rights, and the ability to have economic freedom. So if you're in a virtual world, whether it's created by Facebook or someone else, you should have a reasonable right to privacy, meaning you should have the ability to decide how much information you share about yourself with the platform and with others. Number two, you need to have property rights. If you buy or earn an asset in some virtual world, then you should be able to actually own it, control it. It shouldn't be beholden to the rules um, of the platform or to some you know, executive somewhere who could change how those terms work. And then the final point is you need to have freedom to do transactions. If I want to sell something to you, some virtual good, uh, or take it with me out of one environment and move it to another, I should be free to do that. Right now, none of the visions for the metaverse that are um, promoted by big tech companies can contemplate these rules at all. And I think that, that um, that's deeply troubling because unlike, say, like the first era of the Internet, which was largely funded by you know government R and D um, that went into the Creative Commons. Most of the um, work that's been done in the metaverse has all been done by big companies, and so in a way they kind of have a lead in this field. And I, I worry that um, the the world that we're inhabiting, where more and more of our time 
in our entertainment and our fulfillment as human beings is spent in these environments will still be beholden to those old rules. Um, and so I think that the good news is that a Web3 metaverse is one that uh, empowers individuals at the expense of platforms and creates more freedom. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com smart. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay. I wrote down, I was like, I'm going to take notes so I can ask follow-up questions. And there's seven of them now, and now I'm confused. <laughs> um, not with you, just where to go. couple of things. First, you mentioned what the, let's call it Facebook metaverse is, just for lack of a better word. Yep. And that reminded me a little bit of the move from pre-web to web, to web one. Hmm. And, and the reason is because it was like saying, let's take what exists in the real world and put it online. I love and that. that. Yeah. Is that fair? Totally. Okay. 100%. So cool. I, I like, it, it's just helping my understanding. Um, one thing you talked a lot about was ownership and value. Yeah. And I think that gets people tripped up. I don't want to speak for everybody but myself, because when I think of value, I think of money. So I go, well, right now, via the web, I can make exchange money uh, to other people anywhere. And so why? what's the difference between the ability to maybe buy something virtually or let's say I put up something online, a newsletter, right? I You can buy it from me. So we're transacting and I own it. Yeah. So I don't quite understand the difference. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the key part is that the transactions are peer to peer and don't involve, so don't involve an intermediary and are hard to censor. So the, the what the web is fundamentally is a protocol that allows individuals to move information peer to peer 
right? So you don't have to use the, you know, the AT&T telephone network or the U.S. Postal Service or, or whatever. I'm just, you know, with the way in which we used to move information. Now there was a way to move it peer to peer. Um, until Bitcoin came along, there was not a way for individuals to move value peer to peer over the web. Instead, they had to rely on intermediaries. And those intermediaries included banks and brokers and credit card companies and transfer agents and you know blah, 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 like all these financial third parties that sit in the center. And those third parties uh, existed to perform really important roles. Um, three things in particular that intermediaries do. The first is they establish the identity of parties in the transaction. Then they create trust. Um, they act as a trusted intermediary. And then they perform what's called business logic. So clearing, settling, record keeping, contracting, et cetera. And for doing that, they um, get compensated. And some would argue um, over overcompensated for the role that they do. Um, they also have some very big limitations. Now, I've described the, the problem of platforms, which is that they undermine our privacy and they capture all the value of people creating online. But when it comes to financial intermediaries specifically, um, they also exclude big parts of the population that don't have access to a bank account. They add friction and cost uh, to transactions, you know, for moving money overseas, it can take weeks to transfer funds and cost, you know, on average five to 10 percent. And um, that is problematic because it um, is a tax on users. And it's also something that um, keeps people out of the financial system. So what um, what Bitcoin solved was uh, a thing called. Uh, the double spend problem, which basically says when you move something of value online, how do you ensure that you don't have a copy, right? So like if I, I should have described this at the beginning, Chris, but basically let's say, for example, that I was sending you an email and I had an attachment on it. Now you receive that email and that attachment and that's great, but there's nothing stopping me from sending that same email with an attachment to someone else, right? And by and large, that's okay. In fact, it's one of the great benefits of the web is that the web is kind of like a printing press for information, right? But instead of that attachment being like, say, a PowerPoint, it was 50 bucks. Um, it's very important that you know when you receive it that I can't send a copy to someone else the same way I could with, say, like a PowerPoint or PDF. Because if I can copy money or assets the way that I can copy information, then those money and assets become worthless, right? And this is, this is what they call the double spend problem. And uh, what Bitcoin did was basically it was the first technology to solve this thing called the double spend problem. And it did so with the help of this technology known as a blockchain. So uh, sometimes it's helpful to get into the technicals. And, and I think maybe this is a good way, to, good time to do that. So basically, I talked about intermediaries, uh, middlemen, right, who sit in the center of transactions. Well, one of the things they do when they establish identity and create trust is they maintain this thing called a ledger, right? A ledger is basically just like a database of transactions, who owns what, who owes what to whom, and so forth. And for maintaining this ledger, they get compensated um, as the trusted intermediary. A blockchain is a ledger. It is a record of transactions. Except instead of sitting inside of a single computer system or a bank, it is decentralized or it's distributed. Copies of it exist all across the network. And anyone can see that ledger and everyone can um, 
trust that it's accurate, but no single entity can alter the results. The only way that the ledger can be updated is if the whole network reaches consensus. And that's a process that happens every few minutes or seconds, depending on the blockchain. Um, and when it does, it adds new transactions to the network, which they can all be seen and trusted, but not altered by any single party. So basically, it's a way to replace the function of a bank or a trusted third party with a network state, with a network doing the same job instead. And instead of putting trust in the hands of an intermediary, it uh, distributes trust across all parties. So I know that sounds like sometimes that can sound kind of gobbledygooky, but basically um, the net effect of this, like the reason that it's so interesting, is that it enables us to create scarce digital goods. Like if I sent you a Bitcoin and I could send the exact same Bitcoin to someone else, then that Bitcoin would be worth nothing, right? It would be worthless. So what blockchains allow us to do is to ensure that when, when you have that, when I send you a Bitcoin, you have it and I don't have it. Now, what's so fascinating about blockchains is that um, Bitcoin just happened to be the first use case, like the first killer app for this technology. But actually, blockchains can be programmed to represent anything of value. Um, so instead of so that's where that you hear about content and all the rest of it. So basically, um, blockchains can be a way to represent value in Bitcoin or U.S. dollars or shares of companies or collectibles or pieces of art or IP that creators have made online or even votes in an election, as I described earlier. You know, because a vote is kind of like a transaction. When you vote, it's important that your vote is cast and counted for the person you voted for, that it can't be cast again and that it remains private, but that you can also verify it after the fact. All of those things are true of transactions as well as of votes. So what blockchains enable us to do is to create a value layer for the web, an asset layer for the web um, that is going to, in my, in my view, be transformational for business, but also for, for culture and, and so many other things too. So I hope I didn't go down too much of a rabbit hole there. Because I think, I think sometimes it's helpful to to just dig in a little on on the specifics. Well, and I think if you're listening, you know, there's kind of two mindsets. You're one, I want to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like one, I want to know the generalities, but the other is if I buy into kind of what you're saying that this is going to be a major part of our life, which I think most people do. It's just at what point, right? Then I should probably start to understand it. Not just, hey, I know what Bitcoin is, but understand the layers below that. Most people who listen to the show want to know that. So I think that's helpful. Um, oh, man, a couple of things here. Help me understand this, though. I get the... Isn't there still an a intermediary, even with something like blockchain? Because So the, I have two examples. One is, to your point, it's a network instead of an institution. But... Is that trading one for the other? And then the other question is, right now, if I were to send you a Bitcoin, I still have to go through some uh, platform, I would imagine, and they are an intermediary. Even if it's not a Coinbase, I'm assuming it's a, I don't know, this is where it's above my head. No, no, but no. These are two great questions. Okay. Let's go. So, no, Chris, dead on the money. So, um, the answer to the, to the first question is sort of yes and no. Um, you're not relying on an intermediary um, that can shut you down or prevent you from using it, right? Um, and that's one of the things that makes these this asset class so powerful, is that not only is it peer-to-peer, -peer, but it's uh, censorship-resistant. And it is um, uh, open, it's, um, 
it's not permissioned, right? So like using a, a bank or um, any company requires you to open an account, prove your identity, you know, um, and do the transaction. Now, uh, for a lot of people who don't have a way to prove their identity, that means they can't access financial services. And, you know, there's a couple billion people in the world or a billion and a half who are kind of like that. But even for other kinds of people, like being able to do transactions peer to peer um, is, is uh, very, very useful, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the biggest markets in Web3 is for an asset known as a stablecoin. A stablecoin is a d- token, so a crypto asset, a token, uh, backed by U.S. dollars. Um, and it allows individuals to move U.S. dollars peer-to-peer, even if they don't have a U.S. dollar bank account, and without the need for a financial intermediary. So there's a lot of benefits to that. One, um, there are the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency, and everyone would love to have access to it, so it makes it way easier to own dollars, but it also means you can send them peer-to-peer and, and instantly. So um, that's something that removes the need for a per, like the permission that you would need to access a bank account where maybe you couldn't get one, right? So like, and Alex, let me let me pause you because if people aren't fully grasping, I think the enjoyment of this. I I like sports betting. I've done it for a long time, right? And even though it's legal now and everything I do is legal, it's fine. There are still times where I'll say, hey, I want to deposit 200 bucks and my credit card company will say, sorry. And I'm like, this is bullshit. It's my money. I'm a grown adult. I fully understand what I'm doing. Why? Yeah. Whereas with Bitcoin, I can just be like, boop, here it is. And you don't get to tell me. Yeah. And and given how many people take seriously this idea of, you know, liberty and freedom and all of this. Those are the small things that seem nominal, but if you expand them out, it's really censorship to a degree. And I think that's what you're highlighting for me. Yeah, absolutely. And like there are lots of, um, I mean, countless, actually, uh, legitimate kinds of transactions that banks sometimes censor and or, or that banks can't offer. Right. So that's the example I was giving about people sending money around the world using dollars. That's something that banks can't currently offer for retail customers. Um, and in your case, it's legitimate legal uses of your bank account, which is your money um, and them telling you you can't do it. Right. And so that's one of the big benefits um, of the asset class is that it's uh, it's censorship resistant. I like that. And it's not and it's permissionless, meaning you don't have to get someone's permission to use this technology. Kind of like the, the the Internet. Right. That's why. In my first book, Blockchain Revolution, I describe blockchains as the Internet of value because the first era of the Internet was a way to move information around peer to peer. And this is a way to move value around peer to peer assets like that's the key insight. Um, And so it it is different um, from from institutions in that respect. Um, Having said that, and and by the way, like there are ways for you and me to move money peer to peer without the need for a Coinbase very easily. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Is there still an intermediary that has some control or no? Because no. I don't know this area. Yeah. Okay. So like it would basically be like I would I would need to know what your public key is, which is basically like your account number. And then I could, send, I could like write a transaction and send it to you over a blockchain peer to peer without the need for an intermediary. And what's an example of that blockchain? I've heard I think I've like, heard like some. The Bitcoin blockchain. Ethereum is the second largest. But I mean, do you go to a website or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So so you can use like. Um, within the, there are like um, open source software applications that are okay. not like a permissioned account based, uh, non custodial. So like, okay, I don't want to get too detailed, but 
No, but I am Basically, curious. Like when you think of a bank or a PayPal or something, like it's your money, you send it to them, and then you go to your account where your money is, and you send it from that account to another account. Right. With, with uh, blockchains, you're custodying your own assets. You own your own assets. And you can use an open source techno like wallet application to basically just move the value over the blockchain peer to peer. Sort of like okay. using the web to move information peer to peer. Um, using like, say like email or something. Uh, and is that, is that the equivalent of like, I know, um, people take their, their, uh, crypto and they put it in like a, a, a actual hardware wallet. Right. Yeah. I don't know what it's called, but it, is that like you have, okay, I realize I'm dumbing this down. But, no, this is great. Um, you own a website, right? Like it's your wallet IP, whatever the hell you want to call it. And so you're just basically sending the currency from your website to mine. The difference is there's no intermediary. It's a virtual wallet almost. Is that a yeah. decent way of thinking about it? Yeah, you can think of it like that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, it's like, th yeah, th that's, that's, okay. like, that's a perfectly fine way of thinking about it. Okay. Rather than like having to go through someone else's website, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Okay, So, cool. So having said that, there's still like the risk of the blockchain itself. Like, does the blockchain work? Um, will it fail? You know, that's these are legitimate questions, which is why the two most popular blockchains are uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain are used lar in large part because they've been around for a long time. They're super secure. Um, they've never you know, been hacked in any kind of meaningful way. And also in order to, you know, if you wanted to actually like hack one of these networks, you'd have to take over, um, you know, the, a lot of computing power to do so, or in the case of Bitcoin, or in the case of Ethereum, you'd have to convince, you know, most of the network participants to do something that's not in their self-interest. Um, so in other words, like, it's just like very difficult. Like, it's easy to corrupt a single person, right? But it's very difficult to like convince everyone to, to do something that harms the whole network because they're all stakeholders on that network. So it's like a way to, just, as I said, sort of de decentralize uh, trust. Um, and then the second part is about the interface. So you and I could send the money peer to peer, but the reality is that many people still do use things like Coinbase, right? Like that's unavoidable. And I think in a way that's good and bad. Um, it's good in the sense that those uh, platforms are like on ramps to the blockchain superhighway, right? Like you gotta get on somehow. If you wanna transact in digital assets, then you need to be able to somehow move fiat currencies into those assets right um and so that's one example but but also i think partly people use it for convenience and that's um good and bad because you know it's great it's convenient people can still use those apps to move value around peer to peer but it is still but it is now re-intermediation right exactly so it's like yeah. there was a middleman we got rid of him but then you know for convenience sake and for the user experience it's actually kind of easy <laughs> to just use some um, interface and i think that until there are open source decentralized like op like blockchain based um ways to do that uh, and there are but they're still not as easy as coinbase like coinbase is a you know conventional in a way silicon valley high growth company they've been enormously successful um, and they make it easy for you to access this asset class and this technology. And, you know, they've been really successful doing that. Um, in order to achieve sort of the promise, though, of 
you know, of the read, write, own web of actually owning it, then, you know, possession is a big part of it. They say possession is nine tenths of the law. If, if you're relying on someone else to custody your assets and hold the value for you, then in a way you haven't really gone to the web three phase yet. Got it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm trying to think of a couple of other instances in where this idea of ownership, because it seems very core. We've talked about trust and we've talked about uh, permissionless, but this ownership. And, and I'm going to give an example and you tell me your thoughts on this, but you mentioned the overlay of things like AI and blockchain is what's really exciting now. And so if we get to the stage where um, we have augmented reality, which I think we're almost there. I mean, I don't know. I, I'd see this stuff all over the place, but where you wear glasses and like it kind of fills in the data. Is it fair to say then that let's say somebody creates the Mona Lisa version two and you want to hang it in your house, but you also want it to exist in your metaverse, whatever that is, digitally, then this is an area where uh, augmented reality and blockchain overlay because you are the only one that can own it. Whereas right now, somebody could like take a picture of it and hang it in their metaverse. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, when it comes to digital art, it's a little bit different than physical art. Like there is only one Mona Lisa painting. Um, there are plenty of copies of the Mona Lisa and yeah, that's true, yeah. an infinite number of digital images of the Mona Lisa that anyone could put on their flat screen TV and hang in their house. But there's only one original. Now, the difference between digital art and physical art is that, um, you know, the digital art displayed on one screen might look indistinguishable from what it is displayed on the other screen, right? Um, but the difference with the idea of using ownership is to basically create an original work that has a signature. So instead of thinking about like a single painting, think of a print, right? Like there's an original piece of art and then they might do a limited print run of like 600 different copies. Um, or in the case of like, say a photograph, like a photograph, just like people sell photos for hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars if they're from a reputable uh, artist. But if you get your hand on the negative, then you could just recreate it over and over again. So what makes the original valuable? Well, the original, the original is valuable because it's the original, um, you know, signed by the artist. Um, there's a proof that it's the first one ever. Um, and that gives it scarcity. And the same is kind of true. What I think what you're alluding to is the NFT space, which is basically, you know, these these digital artworks or digital collectibles where, yeah, sure, you could 
just take a screen grab and post it, you know, on your website, but only one has the digital, has the signature in the same way that like only one has the signature of the artist in a painting. This one has a digital signature. So you can actually think of the NFT less as the actual image and more as the signature itself, right? Got it. That gives yeah. it scarcity and makes it unique. Now, okay. that's not to say that I have a view on any of these projects as investments or something. Like I have no, sure, but I do like the idea of being able to, for creators to be able to prove that when they made something, that it's the original, because that means that they might be able to monetize it and make more money from it. There's another dimension to NFTs, Chris, which is really important, which is that because it's just software, it can be programmed. And one of the things that it can be programmed to do is to pay royalties to the original artist in perpetuity. So basically, when you sell an NFT or any other you know, blockchain-based asset token, um, you can program it so that it pays a royalty back to the original creator. So let's say I was a painter and I, you know, I'm a starving artist. I just graduated from, you know, design school and I sell my first painting for $500 and then I hit it big. And then in a year or two's time or 10 years, you know, that same painting is selling for a hundred thousand dollars. Do I make any profit on the difference between 500 and a thousand and a hundred thousand? No, I've sold that art to the first person. The person who bought it is the one who will make all the money. What you can do with an NFT is you can program the NFT to that create a payment automatically every time it's resold. So you don't have to rely on a gallery or some buyer to make sure that the original creator is paid. You can program the asset so it does that. So there's a couple of things that are worth talking about here. Number one, there are over 300 different NFT projects that have created at least $1 million of secondary royalty revenue for the creator. So not money from selling their work, but rather money that was earned from the resale. So someone bought it and then resold it. There's a profit there. And some of the money went to the original creator. This is important for a lot of reasons. One of them is because we're in this really, really perilous moment, in my opinion, for creators. And that's been largely driven by technology. Like technology for the longest time has been a tailwind for creators. Um, and, you know, like the record made it easy to sell a million copies of a piece of music or the lithograph made it easy to sell a million copies of a piece of graphic art or whatever it might be. Um, but more recently, technology has become a headwind. The web took this thing that was an asset, like in the case of music, um, you know, a record or a CD and turned it into a free commodity that got put through that printing press of the web. And now we've got this risk from AI. Um, AI, I think, has got a lot of creators really worried because, you know, what if AI starts writing scripts and writing scores to film and maybe even acting in movies? What does that mean for people who are creators uh, professionally? And so I think that, oh, and by the way, what's what what recompense or what, what uh, you know, form of compensation should people and creators get if their IP is used to train a model, uh, for example, right? So what's really interesting about the NFT space is that we can apply those lessons to AI. So right now, the concern is if you're a creator, all your IP is going into, you know, an AI model and it's being used to pay to, you know, to, to make money on the other side, how are you getting paid for it? Well, if the IP itself was tokenized like an NFT, we'd be able to track how it's being used and if it's creating value. And if it is, then we'd be able to create a payment automatically that goes back to the original creator. We'd be able to, we'd be able to know the provenance, the ownership, and the amount that they were owed. And maybe that would be a way for 
data creators and and artists um we're all creators you know in a way but also like really professional artists to to actually volunteer more information to these models so that they could actually get paid more as a result so that's when i always like when i talk about the intersection of these technologies we've described a couple like vr and ar but even when it comes to ai you know we need new ways to ensure that these models that are creating all of this stuff are doing so in a way that 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 fairly compensates data creators. And to my knowledge, the only way to do that is using blockchain. Yeah, I, I just got this thought, right? We've been podcasting forever. I mean, 14 years or something, right? Probably, I don't know, 500 plus hours of fairly condensed content, 500 people, experts, et cetera. So imagine the expert comes on and like yourself, and they tie everything they say to, I don't know, a, 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 a blockchain or an NFT or whatever it is, right? And then we transcribe it and we put it on the web and then ChatGPT scrapes that and uses it in a model. It kind of all flows back. Yeah. Fair exactly. example. So it's yeah. like, um, yeah, exactly. And I don't know how much, who knows how much we'd get paid. Right. Yeah. But, but like, still. you know, you got a library with thousands of hours of podcasts where you've interviewed dozens of, you know, smart people. Um, and that language is being used to to train a model, and that model ends up being worth a trillion dollars. Some of that could belong to you, right? And I think that's sort of interesting. Like, there's a lot of discussion within the AI world about um, where to get more data. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I've heard that these models need more data. They, like the more data they're trained on, the more accurate and the better the product. So, you know, they've already scraped all of the web and Reddit and, you know, uh, and, you know, all your Facebook posts and your Instagram posts. Like this has already happened, right? That's you know, gone. We, yep. we got our consent. I mean, like not that we ever we, we, we gave away any right to consent by using these platforms in the first place. That's sort of the web, the web two problem. But going forward, you know, if, if we're going to um, create ways to pool data, quality data that that models can use then um, this seems like a really sensible way to, to, to solve it. And it's, to my knowledge, it's the only way to solve it. I mean, there are, there are legal routes. Like you could say, like, you know, there's a new law that's been introduced that says if you're a, a chat GPT, like, like if you're open AI, you've got to, um, you know, track all the data you're using and make sure that you create that, that you pay the original creators and find all their wire information or whatever. Like, I, I just don't see it happening. I think you need no, a simple yeah. digital way to do this, um, to, fit this digital world that we're in. Yeah. And I think I, I love that example of it. I'll give you the the listeners kind of some context. My brother is an artist. He, he does, um, he's an actor and a musician and he makes his living that way. And as an actor, most of it comes from things like commercials and similar. And I was just talking to him and he said the difference, if you get a really big commercial now, as opposed to when he started 15 years ago, the most you can make has been cut in at least half. So think about that, right? 15 years ago, you land a commercial and you make X amount. Today, oh. you land the exact same commercial, might even reach more people, and you make X divided by two simply because the availability of content or people or AI, it, it cuts the scarcity in half. And so it's really impacting people as we speak. So I think that's just, uh, I think it's important to put these real life 
currently happening scenarios to what you're saying. Well, I mean, you know, put another like and I have tons of examples of this, but like if you were an artist and you wrote a hit single in the 1970s or 80s um, and it sold a million copies, you could expect to make about 50 grand. You know, um, today, that same song streams a million times on Spotify. You can make, expect to make 50 bucks. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. I just heard no, Snoop Dogg Apple, said something. It's not apples to apples. Um, but, but like, because, you know, one's buying, one's streaming. But if, if the only way we're consuming content is streaming, no one's buying MP3s anymore, then the model for creators has gotten a lot worse. Um, and that's true not just for uh, songwriters, but for people in many other parts of the industry. Streamers in particular do this practice of, um, of paying upfront for everything rather than offering royalties. And even for content that they've purchased where royalties are owed, um, the creator has no visibility into how much that content is being uh, consumed or how popular it is. Like these streamers don't share any of this information. And actually, that's one of the central issues of the uh, of the labor disputes that are happening in Hollywood, which is that creators want more transparency into how their content is being consumed, because I think a lot of them fear with some justification that they're being underpaid for the content they may have created in the past. Um, that's being streamed on streamers because nobody knows how popular this stuff is. Like in the old days, it'd be like, yeah, you know, some some station syndicates your TV show and runs it. It's like there's a deal for that. With the streamers, it's kind of a wild west. And again, this is a solution where there are collective bargaining solution. You know, there's, you know, you can strike and that's good. That's fine. You can go try and change the laws and that's like fine too. Or you can try and find a technology solution. And I think for some of these challenges, it's kind of an all hands on deck situation. Yeah, it makes sense. We talked a lot about how uh, a big part of this is that it solves the problem of intermediaries. My concern is the world feels owned by these intermediaries. I mean, Amazon, Facebook, they've all only gotten stronger in the past 10 years. Yeah. So what are the chances that they actually let this happen? You know, like really, if they are pulling the puppet strings, what are the chances that we're allowed out of that? It's a great question. Um, I don't envision them leading the charge, right? It's not like they're going to lead us out of one paradigm and into another. They are leaders of an old paradigm. And so the change is going to happen from outside of those companies, not from within those companies. And this is something that we've seen play out uh, in different eras of technology and throughout different periods of history. You know, there's a reason why Kodak didn't invent Instagram or, or why, you know, you know, Marriott didn't create Airbnb or why General Motors didn't create Tesla. Like it's hard for leaders of old paradigms with, you know, legacy uh, mental models and 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 uh, infrastructure and so forth to actually make the change so yeah the question is like as one person i interviewed for the book chris dixon said like are we just tilting at windmills here you know is this sort of a quixotic adventure where really the odds of us de dethroning or not dethroning but creating a viable alternative kind of model to what big tech platforms have created is sort of insane like it's naive well maybe but i think people might have said the same thing about you know the web in the early days you know, was it really possible that 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 cable companies and newspapers and other leaders of old media would actually somehow be impacted by this technology? Well, fast forward today, and a lot of those companies are are still around, but in very diminished forms in terms of what they used to be. And there are new leaders that have come along. So to me, it's not like uh, Facebook and Google and these other businesses are 
are going to go the way of the dodo or something like they're, they're going to continue to exist, um, but they're going to be smaller. They're going to be like less relevant, um, less systemically important <laughs> as well than maybe they were in the past in the same way that today, you know, like Dell and HP and IBM and, you know, GE, these are businesses that are less relevant now than they were 30 years ago um, because they're companies that failed to kind of capture the web and uh, in all its glory and all its, you know, chaos, but they, they weren't there to, 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 you know, own that era. And so I just think it's, it's questionable whether or not those other companies will somehow manage the transition. I'm not sure that's true for all of them. There's some, frankly, that I kind of like <laughs> uh, big companies, <laughs> but for a lot of these big platforms, I just think it's very hard to, to disrupt yourself, to reinvent yourself when you're making so much money doing what you're doing. And therein lies the challenge and the opportunity. Well, speaking of opportunity, I know we got to go here, um, Alex, and your book is Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. And I have to say this, I've learned a ton in this conversation and how this podcast is designed to say, but I now have even more questions, which is a good thing. And that's where your book comes in. So what I'm going to ask in this very last 30 seconds is what do you recommend I'm going to, we're going to link to the book and all of that. What do you recommend people do with this information about Web3? Well, uh, the book is called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier, as you said. And the word frontier is a very intentional choice by me. You know, some frontiers are for experts only or require vast amounts of capital um, to achieve, you know, venturing to the moon or climbing Mount Everest. Um, and all, all frontiers have their fair share of risks and rewards. And frontiers attract the best and the brightest, but they also attract, you know, all sorts of crooks and, uh, and, and hustlers and so forth. But the most bountiful of frontiers in human history are ones that are, are actually pushed by everyday people. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and um, you're here with us here at the end, it means that you've self-selected to learn about this topic. Um, change within organizations, um, within industries can come from anywhere. And so leadership is, is your personal opportunity. So I would strongly encourage everyone, if you want to forge the next frontier online, or if you're just curious about the future and maybe want to play a role in shaping it to, uh, you know, read my book, uh, check it out and um, let me know what you think. I love it, Alex. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Chris. A thank you to this week's guest, Alex Tapscott. The episode was hosted as always by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Alex's book, Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier, is available wherever books are sold. And now for the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at Smart People Pod. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.